This podcast is sponsored by the AFE Foundation. The AFE Foundation is the only patient advocacy organization serving those affected or devastated by amniotic fluid embolism. Their mission is to spur research, raise public awareness, and provide support for those whose lives have been touched by this often fatal maternal health complication. You can learn more about the AFE Foundation at www.afesupport.org. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partners, Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, Nursing Director, and Julie Arafay, Simulation Director for Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. This is the last episode in our three-part series on amniotic fluid embolism. In this episode, we're going to be discussing an actual AFE case and highlighting how simulation can help teams prepare for the management of a woman with an AFE. But first, let's briefly recap what we discussed in parts one and two of this three-part series on AFE. You'll remember that AFE is a clinical diagnosis only. You cannot make the diagnosis by the presence of fetal cells in the maternal circulation. Classically, an amniotic fluid embolism is characterized by sudden onset of either cardiopulmonary arrest or hypotension and respiratory compromise at the same time. That's followed by overt DIC after those initial signs and symptoms appear. And it's important to note that the clinical onset occurs during labor or within 30 minutes of the delivery of the placenta. Now, to put this into a format that's easy to remember, we introduced our mnemonic we call the three Bs, and that stands for breathing, blood pressure, and bleeding. These are really the three clinical things you need to focus on during your resuscitation of a woman with an AFE. Now, while AFE is actually very rare, these three issues are not. So Julie, with that background, can you introduce us to how to use simulation in order to to prepare for these devastating situations? Thanks, Stephanie. When you think about practicing an AFE, it can be overwhelming. And these three things, our three Bs, are usually happening simultaneously, requiring action to be done simultaneously. So the thing that I think about as a debriefer, when you have a very complicated situation like this, is if I have a long, complex simulation, it's very difficult for me to catch every single thing and debrief every single aspect of all of that activity. Let me give you an example of what I'm, I'm thinking about. If something happens in the respiratory aspect, starting this case, and let's say something is not done correctly, and I miss that, and I don't talk about it in the debrief, there's a a risk that everyone watching that video or who participated in that scenario thinks that this mistake is the right thing to do. So when, when when you're debriefing something complicated like this, it's much easier to break it down into components. It makes it less daunting to simulate. It makes it actually easier to run the simulation. And it certainly makes it easier to catch every aspect of this complicated care for these patients. What you want is you want everyone leaving the simulation knowing exactly what is the right thing to do for the patient. 
So let's talk about how you approach each of these three Bs when you're running a simulation. Our first B is breathing. And when I think about breathing and I think about simulation, I think about emphasizing recognition, recognizing what's happening, the action that needs to be taken, and how do you respond if the patient's not improving. Recognition of respiratory compromise is critical. And there are immediate actions that the bedside provider, whoever that is, can take. So keeping those things very clearly delineated is important so that those immediate actions can be done. It also allows you to fine tune your responses. For example, what are all the things that need to be done to facilitate managing this patient who's not breathing well? That might include moving the bed away from the head wall. And if that is incorporated into the actions that you're taking, then you can practice that and it becomes part of what you automatically do. And any anesthesiologist is going to be very thankful to have a little bit of extra room when they come into the room to take care of the patient and do their assessment. One other thing that I think is really important is recognizing an increasing respiratory requirement. We talk about this a lot in lecture and, and we talk about it um, when, when we're talking about patients with AFE, but what does that actually look like and what do you actually do? When your saturations are dropping despite a face mask or the patient has shortness of breath that's getting worse or the patient wants to sit up at the, in the bed um, has high anxiety that's getting worse or really needs the face mask but refuses to put the face mask on, these are all signs of an increasing respiratory requirement. So you can work closely with an actor who could play the role of the patient at this point in this component of the simulation to make sure that, that this is clearly demonstrated and you can talk about recognition of these signs. So what do you do if you see this happen? Who needs to be at the bedside? What equipment do they need? All of these things can be looked at and discussed. The second B is blood pressure. Now this starts with recognition of a sudden change in blood pressure and then what needs to be done next. So when you're in the simulation, you may have two pathways. One may be cardiac arrest. So the patient may suddenly go into cardiac arrest and that is the simulation pathway you're going to take. Or the patient may be severely hypotensive, but not in arrest. Then you would have to think through the actions that would support blood pressure, like potentially getting a second IV in, how much volume do you need to be administering, what medications need to be given, what central lines need to be considered, what people need to be in the room completing these actions. The whole process of getting the team into the room could be the purpose of the simulation. Do they have the tools they need? Do they know where is their best access to the patient? So if you think about all of the things that are going on in the room at this time and all of the different teams that might be in there, it begins to um, look to me like choreography. 
And that's the beauty of simulation. As these different teams come in, you have someone uh, potentially dealing with respiratory, you have someone potentially putting in central lines, you have another group coming in and uh, maybe working with a patient. Where's the best place in your facility for that group to be? What supplies do they need? How do they get access to their supply? So it's thinking through, looking at all the things that need to be done and organizing those tasks. Now let's think about bleeding. That's our third and last B. Most of us have all done simulation hemorrhage simulations. It's one of our bread and butter simulations that we do in obstetrics. Maybe they're not interprofessional, but we all deal with a bleeding patient who deteriorates. The thing to remember about this type of simulation for bleeding is that the patient is in DIC or the patient is hemorrhaging, uh, is decompensating, excuse me, and then goes into DIC. So instead of the patient leading up to and hemorrhaging and deteriorating, this patient is already deteriorating. And as you progress through getting the patient through that acute event, DIC develops. So it's a little bit of a different simulation than what you typically do. You're not looking for the cause of bleeding because you know what the etiology is. But what happens is there's a lot going on with the OB. So it makes this really challenging for the obstetrician. The obstetrician may be trying to manage this patient. It may be um, whatever, maybe a surgical management if the patient is still pregnant. Uh, there could be all the, these other things going on. This is a joint leadership role. Someone from OB team must be providing input jointly with the people coming in with the critical care expertise so that the patient gets the right thing done. That input gives everyone awareness about how much bleeding these patients can experience because if you've worked with your ICU colleagues, they have no idea literally how much our patients can bleed and how much volume is required to resuscitate them. Conversely, the ICU team can be very intimidating to the OB team. And the OB team in simulation needs to gain an understanding of the value they bring to the discussion in managing the patients. So simulation can be a way of the OB team determining in conversation with the ICU team where their value is, what information they need, and they feel more comfortable speaking up. As you've probably guessed, most of this type of discussion occurs during debriefing. So debriefing in this particular type of simulation is crucially, crucially important because this is where the teams talk to each other and learn about what the other strengths and weaknesses are and how they can work together. As we're talking about this, it's obvious how important it is during practice that each team member knows their roles. In reality, it's hard to get all these professionals together to practice, and it doesn't happen usually in most hospitals until a death occurs. This is the impetus to simulate. 
It's not just about having a lot of people in the room. It's about everyone understanding what their role is and what part they're going to play and what they contribute, particularly for physicians, how they contribute to the thought process that goes into managing these patients who are very complicated. Think about a code or a maternal death that you've experienced. Were there a lot of people in the room? Did you have everything you needed? Did everyone know their role? Was the right thing done for the patient in a timely manner? Too often we review cases and talk to caregivers. Everyone believes they did everything that they could, but when you actually look at how things happened, it may not be the case. As Stephanie often says, good intentions are not good medicine. This is how we have not known to use simulation in the past. We have seen simulation as a drill on the unit, but simulation can be very valuable with this type of review. After a root ca a case analysis or after you've done a, a, a clear review of the case, you can do a simulation with all of the people in the room to figure out what is the best way to approach this case. Simulation is the next logical step in this situation. Now, let's go to a case study, and Suzanne is going to take over and talk about a patient with an AFE. Great. I'm going to start with giving you some patient history, and then we'll go through the case and it will progress. And then Julie is going to come back into the case and we're going to discuss how to help you and your team uh, plan and to go through these specific scenarios. So this patient is a 27-year-old, Gravita 1, at 36 and 5 7 weeks, estimated gestational age. She was originally referred to a level four center due to hydramnios, which was very severe. She had an advanced ultrasound and had a diagnosis of fetal duodenal atresia. So her plan was to deliver at this level four center on behalf, uh, behalf of the fetus newborn and the needs that the newborn would have. She had had two previous decompression amnios during the pregnancy uh, because of the severity of her hydramnios. Yeah, so um, just to comment on that, for those who may not be familiar, um, duodenal atresia is essentially a bowel obstruction in the fetus, but it's high enough that the fetus is really not able to swallow amniotic fluid. And so that leads to the really severe polyhydramnios. And, and in these situations, it can be very, very impressive. We're not talking minor mild degrees. These lead to a lot of maternal discomfort, um, a significant amount of fluid. So we often will have to drain the fluid just to be able to make it easier for the mom to breathe. And these babies will typically have surgery, you know, as a newborn, um, while it's not immediately an emergency, that's, that's why she had to be delivered in that, that level four center because this fetus was going to, this newborn was going to need surgical intervention. That's right. So these decompression amnios, they would pull, you know, two, three liters off at a time when they uh, did those. So it's quite a significant, and if you have uh, ever seen one, it's quite a lot of amniotic fluid to pull off at once. So today she is in the OB clinic again, outpatient, 
And she's uh, two hours, lives two hours away from the hospital. So the planning of delivering this patient is very important. And uh, now she's contracting. And that's also not very uncommon when you have such uh, polyhydramnios that you're going to overstretch the uterus that you're going to have a lot of contractions in those patients. And But now her cervix is starting to dilate. She's two centimeters and her membranes are actually starting to push through that cervix. So putting a lot of pressure on the cervix. So they sent her to L&D for monitoring from the clinic. And while she's there, they decide to go ahead and induce her labor because of the two-hour length of the drive that she would have and, and if she got caught outside the hospital and would need to be delivered uh, in this level four center. So she comes in and of course the fetus, when you have that much amniotic fluid is very difficult to trace. So there's a lot of um, maneuvering of the ultrasound to, to get a continuous tracing, but the nurse does a really good job in this case of getting a continuous tracing. The fetus has a category one strip. The mom is contracting every one to two minutes. And they're moderate to palpation. So that it is a significant amount of contractions that she's having. So with the bulging membranes, and now she's at three centimeters, they're really afraid of so much pressure on the, um, the membranes that she may have spontaneous rupture of membranes and that she may prolapse her cord if she starts to get four centimeters and on down the road in labor. So the plan was to do a more controlled artificial rupture of membranes to try to slowly leak those membranes down and to have suction available to, to suction up that massive amount of amniotic fluid that has reaccumulated uh, after her previous decompression amnio. So the nurse suctions about three liters of amniotic fluid when the artificial rupture of membranes occurred. And here's where the amniotic fluid case starts, essentially. So a lot of that fluid coming out, but the patient has a dramatic acute onset of hypotension. And her blood pressure drops to 80 over 50. And her heart rate jumped up to 132. With that, there was a sudden fetal heart rate prolonged acceleration. And again, that was related to the hypotension in the mom, a very acute hypotensive episode. The fetal heart rate recovered following uh, the initial hypotension, but was tachycardic. And then the mom began to have a seizure and the fetal heart rate dropped for a second time. So the patient was transported to the OR for an emergency section. So I want to point out here, the mom is not in cardiac arrest at this time. This was an emergent cesarean delivery, not a resuscitative cesarean. So this is the reason the patient's relocated to the OR. So if you'll reflect back on our previous discussion that we want to do that resuscitative cesarean birth wherever the patient is, if she is pulseless and has gone into cardiac arrest. But this patient at this time was not in cardiac arrest, and I wanted to point that out. So another simultaneous action, like Julie said, you're thinking of all of these things at the same time that need to be done for a patient who is 
hypotensive, had a maternal seizure, and is now experiencing, on top of everything else, a respiratory compromise, as well as a fetus whose heart rate has gone down. And she's moving to the OR, and the physician simultaneously is thinking differential diagnosis. And the differential diagnosis high on the list for this patient was amniotic fluid embolus. So the patient gets back to the OR really rapidly. General anesthesia is induced. So there's a less than 10 minutes from the OR to the delivery. And APGARs in the newborn were 2, 5, and 7. The arterial gas, though, in the fetus, cord gas, was a mixed acidemia. And it happened very fast. And in the literature, that supported that complete obstruction of blood flow can cause a very rapid mixed acidemia occurring in these newborns. So the neonatal team was there and resuscitated the newborn. And the patient remained intubated following the C-section. She also remained hypotensive. Now, She's also in florid DIC and actively hemorrhaging. So the mass transfusion protocol was initiated. Julie, why don't you talk through now how simulation could be helpful at this point in the case? Thanks, Suzanne. So many things are happening at once with this patient, and you need to get a lot of people in the room to do all of these tasks. So two main issues that I think about are roles and actually getting access to the patient. This patient is in an OR, so there are certain standards that have to be met by everyone coming into the room. So in simulation, each facility gets to practice and decide who are the people that need to respond. How do they get into the room? What is the best way to facilitate these people getting into the room? Even if you can't simulate with all the people that you would actually call in this, in emer- in this emergency, you can come up with a process whereby they are directed on how they get access to the patient in the correct fashion. That doesn't violate the sterility um, and the cleanliness of your OR, which, you know, most likely you're going to have other patients who are in the OR at the same time. That's always what happens. So once they get into the OR, where's the best place for them to go? What are their roles when they arrive? Do they have the equipment that they need? Another aspect to think about, and that what I often hear, is physicians don't like to do simulation. Many times what they tell me is, They don't want to do simulation because they're afraid of looking like they don't know what they were doing. So let's just think about the physician in this situation. They are doing a surgery. They know what is coming next if they're thinking amniotic fluid embolus. This could be a very complicated surgery. It's unrealistic and unacceptable to expect the surgeon to be doing more than operating. The surgeon is not going to be able to think of next steps, anticipate and plan for potentially blood administration or other medications that need to be administered. If other people in the room can pick up the leadership role at this point and put patient care activities into motion, 
you can keep the care of the patient moving forward and not rely on the the obstetrician who is in a very complicated and very highly cognitive task at this point. This is only possible through simulation. Stephanie, I think you've had experience with this. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is a really, really key point because, you know, as surgeons and as an, and especially as an MFM subspecialist surgeon, you know, we're very comfortable coming in and taking over and taking charge and, and assuming a leadership role as a general rule. And so in a, in a void, we're going to fill it with leadership. But what we really need to be doing, if we're the surgeon, we need to be paying attention to what's going on. But when you feel, when you're in that scenario and you feel as if no one is, no one else is leading, then it's very difficult to not start trying to take over and saying, this is what needs to be done. You do this, you do this. And that's just, that's not safe. And it's distracting from the patient. It's just too many things to be doing. So, you know, I, I think back to the days of, you know, bef- when I was in practice before simulation became more commonplace in hospitals. And it, it was usually, it, it was very typical that, you know, that there would be a lack of role clarity in the room, a lot of chaos. And so as the surgeon, I would feel the need to kind of take over and do what needed to be done, but it, it's very difficult to do. So I think this is a really important point. You know, as docs, we don't ever want to feel like we're not doing our part or, you know, we're not stepping up and, and we're not very good as a general rule of saying, I need help. And so having a structure in place that that takes away the need for the surgeon to ask for help and allows the, the system to support the surgeon so that they can do their job and the, the other roles are clearly defined without the need for the surgeon to be doing all that multitasking, which really is not a good idea in, in a critical, especially in a critical emergency situation like this. So I, I just think that's a really, really important point. Okay, let's go back to our patient. She is now post-op. Where is she going to go? So in this facility for this specific patient, this facility was a level four center and had a critical care obstetric unit. So that is where she was going to do her recovery. And again, that is going to be different in every hospital and it needs to be planned out. It's hard at 2 a.m., which is exactly when this patient came out of the OR at 2 a.m. Where is she going to go? And that needs to be planned out. She is critically ill still. She cannot go back to a OB unit without a critical care OB program. And you definitely do not want to extubate this patient. She has had massive transfusion. She may have lung injury, and that needs to be ruled out before she is extubated. So the patient, let's start with our three Bs. For breathing in this patient, her airway management was that the patient remained intubated. And in this particular patient, she was actually paralyzed because she was breathing over the vent too frequently and distorting her arterial blood gases. So the patient had to be paralyzed and intubated. So essentially, she's still on general anesthesia in the recovery period. For B, the second B, blood pressure, she had hemodynamic monitoring. She had an arterial line in place, and she was also had central 
uh, catheters in place uh, to monitor volume. So her volume was fairly adequate at this time. Her blood pressure was 110 over 70. And following that 110 over 70, though, she started having intermittent episodes of hypotension. So that leads me to the next B, bleeding. We know this patient has DIC. So we're looking for signs of bleeding internally and externally. So vaginal bleeding was moderate to a large amount. And her uterus was really not as firm as it should be. So some more uterotonics were given. And then in looking at her hemodynamics, more information, her urine output was just right at 30 cc's an hour. So let's talk about the interventions for this patient. She had more volume uh, expansion given. She had crystalloid boluses, and she had 24 units of pack cells during this postpartum um, time period. With the 24 pack cells, she also had six units of FFP and six six packs of platelets. So that is quite a lot of infusion. So remembering back to our other podcast about volume resuscitation, you're putting this in, you want to make sure you keep the patient warm. So this is all going through a rapid infuser, trying to keep the patient warm, warming the fluids, because this patient, as we were putting volume in, it was coming straight out. She was also being supported, her her blood pressure was being supported by dopamine and dobutamine. And dobutamine does another thing too. It supports contractility, that many of these patients will have decreased, the force at which their heart is contracting is decreased. So it serves two purposes. So two hours later, after getting into the recovery room, significant hemiperitoneum is noticed. And there were, we had drains in the patient and she was putting out 1,500 milliliters of non-clotting blood from her abdominal drains. I love drains because you don't have to guess and do abdominal girths as much as you would if you didn't have them in. So in a patient who has DIC, I always preferred having the drains as a nurse so that you can actually see that blood in that area and you can get that out, and you can also determine if they're having bleeding. And this patient was continuing to bleed into her uh, abdomen. Also, uh, evidence of DIC was the bloody urine in her foley, and it was pretty significant. Her hematocrit was 13%, and I remember her hemoglobin obviously is going to be very low. And you think about a 13% hematocrit on a patient who's hypovolemic, that is an overestimated hematocrit. And her platelets were 61,000. Now her blood pressure was 80 over 40 on dopamine. And this patient went back to the OR. This time the OR procedure was going to be for a hysterectomy. Now, when I have been in this situation, this clinical situation in the past, it's been very difficult to know who the leader is. How can we use simulation, Julie, to help resolve this at this point? 
this is a really complicated surgery. The patient has so much going on. She's in DIC. She's hypotensive. Uh, she's in respiratory failure. And now they're going to do more surgery. There's no way the surgeon can manage this patient and do the operation because I think any surgeon would tell you this is a difficult procedure. So there needs to be someone separate from the surgeon who can lead and respond to all of the things that are going on with this patient. Each hospital is going to have to decide who is the best person to lead this case. And the best way to do that is through simulation. It may be that you have a GYN oncologist as the main surgeon and your OB is not participating in the surgeon. It may be that your OB is doing the, sur the surgery and you have someone else who can lead the patient. Regardless of what is the best for your facility, it's important that you think about it, that you practice it, that you understand how to get these people in the room and get them into their role before they have to go in and just begin managing this patient. So you can imagine a complex patient like this, if you're called in at the last minute as an anesthesiologist and you don't have an OB background, how daunting this would be. So thinking about when to call these people in, at what time, even considering ahead of time, hey, we need a different leader in the room. Let's get that person up here on the unit, get them familiar with this case before we go back, if you have time to do that. So it's also important when you have someone who's not knowledgeable about obstetrics to understand that they have resources in the room, that they have people around that can help them think through what is the next best thing to do for an OB patient in this situation. We all know that our patients respond very differently than non-pregnant adults. So if you have someone who does not have an OB background and does not have knowledge about OB, it's going to be important that they have someone to bounce ideas off of and that they have someone to communicate with as they begin to plan care. And obviously next steps. So another thing um, comes to mind for me, um, having been in situations like this when I was at the bedside, these rooms can get loud. Um, we talk about closed loop communication being very important, but sometimes even a good thing can be too much. And if everyone is in the room talking or even sometimes shouting because you get a little bit of adrenaline going about what you're doing, you can't hear yourself think. So you can utilize simulation as a team to decide what are the most important pieces of information that need to be communicated. How do they need to be communicated and to who do they need to be communicated? It's important to be thoughtful about closed loop communication and use it for very critical things like medications, um, administration of blood products, or dramatic change in patient status, things that the team needs to know about and respond to, or things that the team need to know when they make decisions about patient care. Some things that are important, such as maybe putting in a catheter, although this patient probably has a, a fully catheter, but activities like that that are important 
they may not need to be announced. And it may be that communication of this sort is channeled potentially to a nurse leader or is channeled to a leader on the side so that it's not announced to the room, but it's certainly announced to whoever um, needs to know that information. Let me give you an example. If you're using a checklist in this situation and there are a number of items that need to be done, as those things are done, they may not need to be announced to the room, but they need to be told to the person who is controlling the checklist. That could be Sometimes we call that person a reader. Um, Whoever it is in that situation that is the best person to have that checklist, it may be that communication is directed to that person. So in thinking about um, the loudness and decibel level in the room, if you're in a situation where it's too loud, the team needs to be comfortable in methods that can quiet the room so effective communication can occur. And questions the team need to decide are who can quiet the room? When do you quiet the room? And what what ways are you going to use to quiet the room? And then once the room is quiet, what needs to be communicated to the team so that uh, effective care can continue? Let's look back in on our patient now. Great ideas, Julie. I I know being in those situations, the room can get really, really loud and, you know, we, we need to be able to communicate, but yet do it in a way in which it's not so confusing. So back in our patient, she has now had a hysterectomy and, and that's, that is a very difficult decision um, for a physician to make, but was necessary in this patient. Remember this patient was just 27 years old. She was a gravita one. And, you know, making that decision to do a hysterectomy, um, in working with the family, it can be very difficult. But it also n- does not need to be delayed when the source of the bleeding is the uterus. So as a nurse, I know I, I needed to get prepared for that because we knew the patient was bleeding internally. And when they got back there, the uterus was the source and um, that was decision was made. So now this patient was stabilized, but she came back out to the critical care OB unit. This is, again, an ICU unit for obstetric patients. And a few hours later, she became hypotensive again. So let's look back on what we did. She was hypotensive. She had hemodynamic instability, and her volume levels were dropping. Her contractility was low. And so the interventions that she was going to need at this time was more volume resuscitation. That was mainly through blood products um, and to increase her dobutamine and dopamine because she needed pressure support. And another suppressor was added to keep her pressure up. 12 hours later, she stabilized with those interventions. But 12 hours later, she again had increasing hypotension and bleeding. Now her fibrinogen was less than 60 milligrams per deciliter, her hemoglobin was low, and her PT and PTT were both prolonged, uh, which would be uh, very obvious with a fibrinogen of less than 60. Now her hemodynamics were very unstable as well. Her volume was dropping again, and her contractility was starting to drop because of the hypovolemia. 
So the patient required more volume, especially through blood products, increasing her dobutamine. And because of the internal bleeding that was suspected, because we had no outward bleeding uh, uh, evidenced, the patient went back to the OR. When she got back to the OR and they opened her up for the third time, her left ovary was bleeding pretty severely. And they removed the left ovary. Again, another difficult decision to be made by the physician at that time, but it was the source of the bleeding. The patient stabilized, went back out to the OBICU unit, and she was stable for the next 24 hours. Following that, her pressures went pretty high. And when you compared her blood pressures with her hemodynamics, now she's starting to pull a lot of that fluid that you had given her previously back into the intravascular space. So the plan is going to be to diurese now the patient with Lasix, watch her electrolytes, and to change her ventilator settings to optimize her oxygen transport. The patient did well. She was stabilized on the ventilator. This is post-op day two from her final um, oophorectomy. Stable on the vent. Chest x-ray showed cardiogenic pulmonary edema now, and her hemodynamics showed that as well. So more diuresing, continued into the third day post-op, still chest x-ray showing slight increase now of the pulmonary edema. All of her hemodynamic values are high. And actually on post-op day three, she diuresed 14 liters of fluid in 24 hours. Now I love a warm Foley, but that was a little excessive. We were we knew that fluid was there and it was pulling back in, uh, in a, at a rapid rate. So a lot of electrolytes needing to be adjusted with that too, especially with a lot of the Lasix use, uh, replacement of potassium. So post-op day number four, she's stable and on minima- minimal ventilator settings and the patient was weaned and extubated and all of her hemodynamic monitoring was discontinued. Her pressure was stable. Her hemodynamics were stable. So this patient had a good outcome. Mom was um, rescued. Fetus was rescued. Newborn was doing well. And we have to recognize the difficulty of this scenario for everybody that was involved. And I think that that is such an important point that we want to make. And sometimes we forget how difficult it can be for all clinicians, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists to see a pregnant mom decompensate, become critically ill, go through the three B's of breathing compromise, blood pressure compromise, bleeding compromise. And when we say bleeding, we're talking liters of blood loss. And the scene in the OR can be so traumatizing for anybody that's in there. So I want to recognize that. And I also want to recognize those who help come and clean up the room. And I don't want us to forget those those housekeepers and people that come back into that room because they are troubled too by seeing the events that can happen in this room. And then the family 
and the patient. So let's re- recognize all of the difficulty that that we may have with this scenario, this amniotic fluid embolus scenario. So what was the outcome besides the mom was stabilized and all of her lines were taken out and she um, had no residual effects? And I want to applaud the team that took care of this patient because this patient not only survived, but she had no acute kidney injury. She survived intact, which was amazing. She had three surgeries and that was severe, but she survived intact with no organ injury. And the pathology report, I want to talk about that. Remember, we not just sent off the uterus, but we sent off the left ovary that that was bleeding. And this is where it kind of will give you kind of some goosebumps because this came back obviously a few days, you know, later and our team, the team that was taking care of her found out about it even after that. But the patient's pathology on her left ovary showed early stage ovarian cancer. Now we know ovarian cancer to be the silent killer. And in this patient, it could have been the silent killer. So thinking back and what gives you goosies with this patient, had the fetus not had duodenal atresia, she would have delivered in a very small hospital without the resources of a level four center. What would have happened to this patient? If it would have been at your hospital, how would you have managed her? Would you have had the team there? Have you practiced that? This patient was saved because of her amniotic fluid embolus. She may have had ongoing ovarian cancer and not known it until later stages. So this case just gave me the goosies and I'll turn it back over to Stephanie now to give her final thoughts. So um, you may have heard us mention in other podcasts um, on this topic, if you or if you have experienced a patient uh, with AFE um, and need support for yourself or for the family, that's where the AFE Foundation can come in. They have incredible resources for support. And going forward, if you have uh, a patient with you that you suspect had an AFE, or if you're certain she had an AFE, they're also collecting samples to forward our, our further our knowledge and, and research in this area. So don't hesitate to reach out to the AFE Foundation. They have a lot of incredible resources. And we want to thank the AFE Foundation for sponsoring this episode of the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. And you can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsinob.com. And you can follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Feel free to email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. And for a list of references on today's topic, go to the Read app, qxmd.com slash apps or our website. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Bear. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.